Last week we were starting in on the normative perspective in Christian ethics. We've already, in terms of our triangle of necessary and sufficient conditions of good works, studied the goal of Christian ethics, or what might be called the situational perspective in Christian morality. We've looked also at the moral agent, or what I've called the motive angle on Christian ethics. And now tonight we're going to complete the triangle by looking at the normative standpoint of ethics, or if you will, the standard of Christian ethics. And I think a good place to begin here is in Romans 1, 2, and 3. First of all, Romans, the first chapter. In Romans 1, at verse 18, Paul tells us that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth in unrighteousness. And he goes on, there's plenty in chapter 1 that we could, we could look at and exposit, but the point is, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness. It's clear in general revelation that God has certain standards and that he is going to bring his own judgment, punishment, and wrath, curse against those who violate his standards. And so if one looks at his situation, if one just looks at the natural world round about him, he's going to find certain standards of ethics. Verse 20 says, For the invisible things of him since the creation of the world, actually I think a better translation is from the creation of the world or from the created order is another way to put it. For the invisible things of him from the created order are clearly seen being perceived through the things that are made, even his everlasting power and divinity, in order that they may be without excuse, because that knowing God, they glorified him not as God, neither gave thanks, but became vain in their reasonings, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Paul says that all men are guilty before God for not worshiping him in the way that they ought. And of course, worshiping God means conducting one's life in a way that is pleasing to him. Paul is saying that everything sufficient for a godly life is found right out there from the created realm. So you see what I'm getting at? If you, if you look at the situational perspective in ethics, if you look at the facts, where history is going, what nature is all about, you'll be driven to the standard of ethics. If you look at the situation, you've got to find the standard. God's will is discoverable through nature. That's what Paul is saying. And so the situational perspective leads to the normative perspective. Now, this is an interesting second point. What standards are revealed in nature? Well, Paul goes on to use as his leading example of the debauchery of the, of the Roman world, of the pagan um, world in general, homosexuality. He goes on to say in chapter 1, in uh, verse... 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, hateful of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, unmerciful. Long, long list of all these ungodly, unrighteous ways to behave. And then verse 32 is the clincher. Who, knowing the ordinance of God, that they who practice such things are worthy of death not only do the same, but consent with them that practice them. Paul says, if you will look at the situation in which you live, if you'll let God's revelation from the created realm speak to you, 
You'll be driven to the standard of ethics. And the standard, it turns out, is the ordinance of God. The very things which the Old Testament law forbade, the Gentiles know about from the created realm about them. Now, the difficulty in teaching that to people who haven't, through a long course of study or uh, good instruction in the church, come to that conviction anyway, uh, people who are initially po have this idea posed to them uh, have difficulty because when they look at the created world, they say, well, how is it made plain from the created realm that homosexuality is evil? And to that, all I can tell you is that Paul says it's immediately obvious. However, he also says that we hold down the truth of God. We suppress the truth of God because of our unrighteousness. Because of the sinful condition of man, man has, in a sense, blinded himself. Man does not want to see. He has so much at stake in not finding the standards of God that he makes himself not find the standards of God in nature. That's what I think we can call a process of self-deception. And I've been so fascinated with that, if I can just give you an aside here, I wrote my doctoral dissertation in philosophy on the subject of self-deception because uh, one wonders, how is it that somebody can know something and yet not know it? How can somebody believe it and yet not believe it? And if you want an answer to that question, then you have to buy the dissertation. But, uh, <laughs> my point for ethics here, not apologetics or philosophy or epistemology, my point for ethics is that Paul makes it very clear that if anybody wants to have a situational approach to ethics, he'll be driven to the law of God. Are you driven only to the Ten Commandments? That's another interesting question. Um, Ian Murray, who was... Um, in, in, in many respects, a man from whom I have learned and have a great respect uh, as a Calvinist, has written some criticisms of my position in, in Christian ethics to a friend of mine who shared them with me. And one of them is that uh, the only standard that binds the nations, he says, is the law of nature. That is what, is what is revealed, God's moral standards revealed through nature. And you see, he's saying that as though that stands over against the anomic ethics. But my point is, what standards are found in nature? Only the Ten Commandments, which is what he seems to presume. Now, absolutely not. The ordinance of God spoken of in verse 32 of Romans 1 is at least homosexuality. And somebody might want to argue that it also involves all these other things, uh, uh, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malignity, so forth and so on. A number of things mentioned beyond the Decalogue itself. All right, so my first point is Romans 1 teaches that the situational perspective drives you to the full law of God to every law or ordinance of God. What the Gentiles have been given is not beyond the standards found in Scripture, but is precisely the standards found in Scripture, the difference being the mode of revelation. Now let's look at Romans chapter 2. And at verse 14, Paul says, For when the Gentiles that have not the law do by nature the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves. In this regard, in that, they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness therewith, and their thoughts uh, one with another accusing or else excusing them. Their conscience, you see, bears witness that the works of the law are written on their heart. So now if we look at the existential perspective in Christian ethics, if we look at the moral agent, as if we consider the man himself, what is in his heart of hearts, Paul says, in his heart of hearts, he knows the law of God. And so if you start with the motive or the person, remember this is the agent. Maybe it would be helpful if I add here. This deals with the moral agent or his motives. 
And this deals with the situation. Look at the moral agent, you're driven to the standard of God's law, and if you look at nature or the situation in which we live, you're driven to God's law. The works of the law are shown to be written on the heart of the Gentile. So then, whether you look at the existential perspective and examine oneself, or whether you look at the situational perspective and examine nature, Paul says through either avenue you'll be driven to the law of God. Precisely. Uh, and that's a very good question. Let, let me make sure you all understand it. Jim is, although he hasn't mentioned he's alluding to the fact that in the case of the regenerate man, the Bible says he's regenerate precisely because the law is written on his heart. For out of the heart are the issues of life. Therefore, here's a man who can obey God. Those who were formerly in the flesh and not able to please God, Romans 8, now are able to please God. They walk by the Spirit, fulfilling the ordinance of the law. Jeremiah 31 had said that God would write his law on our hearts so that he would now have a covenant which, unlike the one made at Sinai, would not be broken. Okay, so our ability to keep the law and not to break God's covenant, to please him, is precisely, or metaphorically, the, the Bible indicates that in terms of the law written on the heart. And now we come to, the, clearly, the unregenerate, the Gentile, and it says here the work of the law is, does it say written or in his heart? Written in his heart. And I think the, uh, the salient point of difference in terms of the uh, actual wording of Scripture Jim has brought out, it says here's the work of the law is written in his heart. Now, John Murray says, and I think rightly so, that Paul is indicating that the same effect, the same work, the same outcome that you would find in the case of uh, uh, the revealed law of God in Scripture, the specially revealed law of God, uh, is to be found in the excuses and accusations of the unregenerate because he knows the standards of God in his heart. But it's not that God has written the law on his heart, making him regenerate, the work of the Holy Spirit therein. It's just that the work of the law, the same effect is there, the same standard is there. That's right. That's right. It's the work of the law found there rather than the law itself in the case of the unregenerate. And Murray takes it precisely that well, what he's trying to say is precisely that that use of the work of the law over against the law itself is, this, is Paul's way of um, indicating to us that there is a difference. In other words, in a real sense, Murray would say, you've answered your question. Paul wants to draw a distinction, and he does it precisely by saying it's just the work of the law, not the law itself written on the heart. I think that's an accurate description of the difference between the two, and to the degree that the phrase work of the law stands over against law itself, it would encompass that, yes. Gary? Something on the same line as Jim. Yes. Um, I think that's it, what you're saying is theologically accurate. No, no difficulty. The only thing is I hesitate to say that's what Paul is getting at without doing a little more exegesis than I did in preparation for the few comments I'm making right now. Uh, see, you're suggesting there's an activistic sense that the law is working in this man's heart against him. And I'm not really sure that Paul is speaking in that dynamic sense that the law is cursing the man. You see, working to harden his heart. It's, it seems rather that he's saying that they show that there is a work of the law upon their heart in that they accuse themselves and excuse themselves for doing certain things. And so the law is there in its, uh, in its effect. Uh, I'll go that far, and I'll say that I agree with you theologically, but I just don't want to pump it into this verse if it's not really to be found there. Okay, my point then is that the situational perspective and the uh, existential perspective, or the motive perspective, having to do with the agent. Both drive us to the standard of God's law. But then the natural question becomes this. Look, if you get the same standards from nature and from conscience as you find in the revealed law of God, why do we need the revealed law of God? 
And that's precisely the question that a lot of people are asking today. In other words, why do we need these Old Testament laws? Don't we live in an age in which we can count on general revelation and, and, and conscience to tell us what we're supposed to do? Well, now, don't try to say that in the Old Testament, God's law wasn't revealed through nature or in man's conscience. There's no difference between Old Testament and New Testament on this score. So, the criticism's revised. Well, maybe it's been this way all along. Maybe there just hasn't been that much of a need for the revealed law of God in Scripture. Paul takes up this question in seed form in chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage, then, hath the Jew? If the Gentiles have all the standards they're supposed to have, what difference does it make if you're a Jew or Gentile? What advantage has the Jew? What's the profit of circumcision? And he says, much in every way. Much in every way. It's almost like a question that doesn't need an answer. Obviously, it's better to be in a position of receiving special revelation. First of all, that they were entrusted, he says, with the oracles of God. And in so giving them the oracles of God, that is to say the Old Testament scriptures, in giving them the Old Testament scriptures, God was showing his faithfulness. For what if some were without faith? Shall their want of faith make of none effect the faithfulness of God? Has that changed the fact that God was faithful in giving them the Old Testament oracles? God forbid. Yea, let God be found true, but every man a liar. God, you see, was dealing with the Jews in a redemptive fashion, in a way that he was not dealing with the Gentiles. As you know, in the book of Amos, uh, God makes that salient declaration uh, thee alone of all the nations of the earth have I known. Uh, God's not saying that he doesn't know about the other nations of the earth, but he says, thee alone have I loved. Only Israel have I set my love upon. And those who are blessed are blessed through Israel, through the revelation given to Israel, or by being drawn into the covenant made with Israel, becoming, even though outsiders, circumcised in part of the commonwealth of Israel. Isn't it interesting that in Ephesians, the second chapter, when Paul speaks of the Gentiles becoming part of the kingdom of God, he says, you who were once aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and afar off have now been drawn nigh by the blood of Christ. Drawn nigh to what? To the commonwealth of Israel. Don't you see, we're all members of Israel now. The commonwealth of Israel, too. Not just Israel in some vague spiritual sense. That nation Israel. We, the church, have taken its place. We are the kingdom of God on earth. And so Gentiles, being part of the kingdom of God, can be said to join the commonwealth of Israel. So yes, God was faithful. Only Israel did he love. Only Israel did he give a special revelation to. Only Israel did he redemptively uh, work with. And, that, and there's a great advantage to having a redemptive revelation over against a revelation that can do nothing but what? Curse you. Okay, so Paul says, of course, there's a great advantage to receiving the oracles of God. The Jews had a tremendous advantage, the Old Testament scripture. God was faithful in giving them a knowledge of himself calculated to redeem them. Yes. Well, that's, that's there. You see, general revelation no man receives, rather suppresses in unrighteousness or by means of unrighteousness. Uh, and so general revelation turns out to condemn all men. Whereas special revelation, while it can work a hardening in men and condemn some, nevertheless is calculated to bring life. Wasn't the law ordained unto life, Paul will say later in the book of Romans. Uh, special revelation is, because of the sinfulness of man, by contrast, a clearer and fuller revelation than what men in their sin are able to perceive in conscience and nature. And therefore, there's a great advantage to a special, <laughs> redemptive, or um, written form of the revelation. All right. The Old Testament scriptures are a more complete and a clearer transcript of God's will than anything the Gentiles had access to. 
The revelation given to the Gentiles is a republication of that law which was specially revealed to the Jews. The difference is in the medium of communication. God communicates in written form in the Old Testament. He communicates through nature and conscience in terms of what the Gentiles have. It's important that you see then that the Gentiles do not have norms which go beyond the scriptures. The neo Verdian camp of thought among Reformed people today holds that there are cosmonomic laws which, if violated, bring God's uh, displeasure upon you. See, they believe that there are laws of aesthetics which, if violated, are uh, you're acting sinful. That's what it amounts to. Uh, the example given in one of the books, and I, I'm sorry I forget the title and the author, but it's hard to forget the illustration. Uh, one of these uh, men in the Toronto camp says that if you build a 17th century architecture, architecturally designed place in the 20th century, you're violating one of the cosmonomic laws for architecture. Well, now that's a pretty heavy claim. Let's say that I happen to really, you know, like 17th century architecture and I design a, my mansion <laughs> if I had a mansion if I design my mansion according to 17th century standards and he's saying those are not contemporary standards it's not keeping up with where architecture is today consequently it's against the it's against God it's contrary to the will of God that's a law that we re, we read off of the natural realm or from the realm of uh, aesthetics well I, I suggest that that really binds our consciences uh, much more than God would have us bound. It's a form of legalism. It's a, it's a form of will worship. When we look at nature, Paul doesn't say we find norms which can't be found in the Old Testament. Because then, you see, there wouldn't be an advantage to being a Jew. Because then the Gentiles would have had more knowledge of the will of God than the Jews were given. But Paul says that the advantage is that of the Jew. We must insist on the sufficiency of Scripture for ethics, against this cosmonomic idea that the Bible is a, has a very narrow concern for ethics. Uh, see, the cosmonomic school says we need to open up our perspective and learn God's requirements found throughout every realm of life. My perspective is we must take the standards of, of Scripture and apply them to all realms of life. We don't learn more laws out there in these other spheres, but rather we take that which we learn in the Scriptures. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, I know that I've said this just about every week, but this is the appropriate point to repeat it. There is no good work for which we need to seek a norm outside of God's special, inspired revelation. All scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be perfectly furnished unto every good work. There is not one good work, be it in the realm of architecture or in helping flood victims. There's no good work that cannot find its standard in scripture. The fullest transcript of God's revealed law, then, is in the Scriptures. Now I want to make one more point, and that's that in the Scriptures we find correction and facility for realizing the proper goals and ethics and becoming the kind of people God wants us to be. Remember we've talked about love is what should motivate us, or faith, we can talk about some of these others, but love is the primary motive for Christian ethics. Now, let, let us say that you have a teenager in the back seat of a car. And he says that he loves this girl that is his date. Now, what does that mean in terms of their sexual relationship? I dare say that if you asked your general culture, they would probably give him the go-ahead. 
Joseph Fletcher certainly would. We know, however, when we look at the standard of God's law, that that isn't what genuine love is. And so it, it turns out that we need the law of God to correct our misconceptions of love. Also, how do you how do you realize the kingdom of God on earth? Do you uh, kill Idi Amin? I mean, forgetting that it might appear that he's in such a condition already. But I mean, if he were still ruling and so forth, and you had the opportunity, should you or should you not kill him? Would that realize the kingdom of God on earth? Well, as it turns out, we may argue even when we go to the scriptures here, but forgetting that, let's assume we all know what the answer is once we go to the Bible. The Bible should help us to know what it means to pursue the kingdom of God on earth. Does pursuing the kingdom of God on earth mean that we sit here studying ethics tonight, or do we go downtown and try to help the victims of the flood? What would really realize the kingdom of God on earth? All right. Well, scripture can help us clarify some of those ambiguous points, just like it can help us clarify our ambiguous conception of love. So, we have said that if you study nature, you're driven to the law of God. If you study the motive or the heart of man, his conscience, you're driven to the law of God. We've said that the law of God contains every standard that is necessary for ethics. There's nothing in nature or conscience that goes beyond that. There's nothing in general revelation that goes beyond special revelation. Moreover, we've said there's an advantage to special revelation in that it helps us clarify the norms of God, help us to clarify love in the kingdom of God. And that's why when all is said and done, there's an appropriateness in Christian ethics to expositing the law of God. It's not because we're legalists. It's not because, well, let me put it this way. I've had people say, and I've studied under men who say, that those who have a hankering for details and norms and so forth are ethically immature. You see, it's just because they're afraid to make any decision on their own that they want every little piddly detail taken care of, you know? They want God to tell them yes or no to this, yes or no to that, yes or no to this. Whereas we should be able to depend upon the glory of God and the love of God to guide us. Well, I dare say that everything I've said thus far this evening runs contrary to that. And since what I've been saying comes out of an exegesis of Scripture, I'm not going to be too greatly worried if people think we're being immature if we now spend the rest of our course on the law of God. I think it's appropriate, I think it's scriptural, that this emphasis at the end of our course comes out on the law of God. Okay, we've been looking at general and special revelation in terms of God's standards. I'd like to look now at God himself as the standard. God is the standard of Christian ethics. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, the apostle John makes this declaration. And this is the message which we have heard from him and announce unto you, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is light. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, we can see the significance of this. He that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not where he goes because the darkness has blinded his eyes. To say that God is light is to say that God is a God of righteousness in contrast to that darkness wherein sinful men stumble. Darkness is equated with lovelessness by John and being without a standard, being without a guide, being in a condition of stumbling about, not knowing where you're going. Blinded eyes and stumbling around. So to walk in darkness is to be loveless and to not have a standard or a norm. In contrast to that, you have walking in the light. And God is light. 
course, John is telling us that to walk in sin is to not know where you're going. Those who are sinful don't really know where they're going. They're walking in darkness. Look at 1 John 2, verses 3 and following. Light and guidance, it turns out, emanate from God's commandments. And hereby we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keeps his word, in him verily, has the love of God been perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. All right, so light and guidance will come from the commandments of God. Remember the 119th Psalm, verses 105 and 130 in this regard. Perhaps the Old Testament background or allusion in John's words here. Psalm 119, verse 105, and then verse 130. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The opening of thy words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So you see, the opening of God's word provides the light. Looking at the standards of God's law gives direction so that one doesn't stumble about in darkness. Well, we began by saying God is light. We found out that light means that you have standards and that you operate in a loving way. Darkness means you don't have standards, you're unloving. And we found out that light and direction and guidance and standards come from the law of God. God himself, therefore, as the light, is the source and the archetypical, original, of the commandments. Let me say that again. God himself, then, as the light, is the source and the archetype or archetype of the law. See, if the law provides light and God is light, then it must be that the law is what? Reflecting the character of God. God is light. Light comes through his law. God's law then reflects him. And I think that must be kept in mind when we remember the number of times that Jesus said that he was what? The light of the world. John 8, 12. Also, John 1, 4. John 3.19, John 9.5, John 12.35, and 46. Notice how it's the Apostle John who is insistent on this aspect of the character of Jesus. He's the light. All right, God is light. God, therefore, is the standard for our walking in the light. God is the standard of righteousness and truth. By his very nature, God is a lawgiver. No, I haven't read it, although I'm somewhat familiar with it and people have told me of it. I'll be glad to respond to any argument in it that you wish. Um, John was a classmate of mine at Westminster, and I knew him fairly well, and I think he and I... In fact, he just recently wrote to me about somebody who misrepresented my book and thought it would be good if I was able to correct it. So, I mean, I think we have a friendly adversary relationship if we have an adversary relationship at all. Um, and so, in all friendliness but candor, I must say that John has staked out for himself an absolutely impossible position theologically to defend. I, there is, to this, we, I think we have to give him credit for this. He wants to be consistent with his Anabaptist origins. That's true. He wants to, he wants to say, no, look, if we're going to say we don't have infant baptism, then there is no covenant of grace and there is no continuity, and he keeps backing up, backing up. But you see, the advantage of that is that by backing up and backing up and taking the consistency of a man's premise, he, vi he finally reduces himself to absurdity. And I'm not using absurdity as a name-calling here, but in logic, that's what happens. If you take a false premise, it will always be able to be reduced to absurdity. And I think that's what John has done. Is it true that the commandments do not reflect the character of God? 
If you'll look in Theonomy chapter, I haven't got it with me, it's the chapter entitled The Integrity of the Law, you will find, I would say, probably 30 illustrations of things which are unique prerogatives or characteristics or qualities of God which are also assigned to the law of God in the Bible. Okay, Jesus says to the man who questions him, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Yet Paul can say that the law is good. Obviously, the only reason the law is good is because it reflects God's character. And I think that chapter is a sufficient refutation of that. I, just an inductive study of all those characteristics of God which are applied to the law make it rather clear that the law does reflect his character. Great. Is that the same thing as saying uh, the character of God are the attributes of God? Well, yeah, character and attributes, same thing, sure. Now here we're talking about his moral attributes. I don't mean to say that God's omniscience is reflected in the law. I'm talking about his moral character. Well, why is it that throughout... I'll give you an example. I keep coming back to this even though I've said I don't need to. In the Old Testament, over and over again, God calls his people to be holy by walking in his statutes. And they are to be holy. Why? Because I am holy. You see, that we are to reflect his holiness on our, on our creaturely level. And how do we do that? By walking in his statutes and ordinances and laws. It's rather clear that the law is the standard of holiness, and holiness is his character. We said God is light, and therefore God is a lawgiver by nature. Uh, it's a long argument, but it comes mainly from premises found in 1 John. We could do the same thing, although I won't for the sake of time tonight, by starting with 1 John 4.8. What does 1 John 4.8 say? God is. God is love. All right? Now, I'm saying if you'll study what the Bible says about love, and especially in the Paul, uh, excuse me, in the Johannine epistles, uh, and this is love that we what walk in His commandments. You'll find out that because God is light, that reflects uh, the law reflects His light character, and because God is love, the law reflects His loving character. But my point here is simply to remind you that ultimately God is our standard of right and wrong, and then God tells us what His character is like by revealing Himself through His law. Okay. Thirdly, let's look at creation and providence. The world, according to Scripture, was created by the Word of God. Nature is governed, according to Scripture, providentially, by the Word of God. The Bible specifically speaks of God's Word being the agent of creation and providence. Now, these two functions of God's Word are tied up with the authority of God's Word for human life as well. I think we can see that in Psalm 33, verses 4 to 11. We're speaking of the Word of God as having an agency in creation and providence. And yet, that agency in creation and providence has an intimate relation with the authority of God's Word for human law, or for human life, excuse me, as well. Psalm 33 at verse 4. There we read, For the word of Jehovah is right, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of Jehovah. By the word of Jehovah were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps and storehouses. Let all the earth fear Jehovah. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Jehovah brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the thoughts of the people to be of no effect. The counsel of Jehovah stands fast forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. 
You notice how in verses 6, 9, and 10 of Psalm 33, creation and providence are tied up with the Word of God. But in verses 4, 8, and 11, the Word of God is seen as a law that is right so that God is to be feared. Now we, theologically and properly, I think, can distinguish God's Word in creation and providence and God's Word in directing human life, can't we? We know the difference between those two. One is his decretive will and the other is his prescriptive will. But you notice how the psalmist leapfrogs these conceptions? Okay, verse 4, the law as directing human life. Verse 6, creation and providence. Verse 8, the law as right. Verse 9, creation and providence. Verse 10, creation and providence. Verse 11, the law as directing human life. These two just get mingled together. Or another psalm that does the same thing is Psalm 19, which we read in closing last week. In Psalm 19, we read that one Lord is to be found in general and special revelation. That the, that the God revealed in general revelation is the God who reveals himself in special revelation. And thus there is one law, one word of God, but in two media. There is a unity, consequently, between the decretive will of God and God's preceptive or prescriptive will. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with this uh, theological jargon, the decretive will of God is what God decrees to take place. It's what he, by his will, determines shall be. <clears throat> the de uh, the uh, prescriptive or perceptive will of God are the precepts of God, his prescriptions for human life. He says, this is what ought to happen. Decretive will, what will happen. Prescriptive will, what ought to happen. And what the psalmist is showing us is that there's a unity between those two. And that unity is just this. One is as sure as the other. Once you catch on to that is the point you see in Psalm 19, and that tells you something about the law of God. The law of God is as sure as God's word in creation and providence. Thus, obedience to God's law in man's natural environment, excuse me, obedience to God's law is man's natural environment in which he was made to function. And man's very nature, man's function in the world, is determined by God's word. Consequently, man should obviously respond obediently to God's word of law guiding his life. God's word in his decretive word in creation and providence and his word in directing our lives, his preceptive will, are equally sure. Let's go on and look at one more aspect of uh, the theological curriculum. We've looked at general and special revelation. We've looked at God himself. We've looked at creation and providence. Let's look at fall and redemption. Two other theological themes in scripture that are correlated. Notice that it is God's word that is at stake in the fall of man. When Adam was created, he was created upright, and therefore there was no complication from his situation, no complication from his own moral nature as a human being that, um, that made it difficult for him to obey God. It wasn't as though there was something in his environment that would made him, make him fall, or something in himself that would make him fall. There were no complicating factors there. He was created upright. And so the focus must naturally be upon the normative issue of God's word, the authority of God's word. It wasn't whether Adam could see in his situation 
what he ought to do, or whether he was able as an agent to do it. Okay, there was no fallen nature to obscure general revelation. There was no depraved nature to keep him from obeying. The whole issue then was whether he would follow the standard of God. You see, you can put the other two issues behind you. The focus, the very point of the prohibition and the, um, uh, uh, the test that God put Adam under was whether he would obey the word of God on the basis of God say so. Now, the Bible says that man in the garden subjected himself not to the law of God, but to the law of the snake. He was to have dominion over the snake, but rather he let the snake have dominion over him. And now that God's authority has been challenged, once Eve gets it into her head that she has the right to decide what is good and evil, then men begin to see things differently for the very first time. Then a discrepancy arises between their situation and the rule that God had given them to live by. Like I said, there was no complication in the situation prior to the fall. But as soon as Eve took it to herself to have the authority to decide between Satan's hypotheses and God's rule, then the Bible says she looked upon the tree, and how did she see it? It was a delight unto her then. It was something that she lusted after. She saw the tree in the wrong light. She had the wrong evaluation of the tree because she was now taking it to herself to be the authority and not living under the authority of God's standard. And so the tree looked good rather than bad, and she was led to eat of the tree rather than to resist it. That is simply to say that she came to see her situation through Satan's eyes rather than through her own. And this is the very beginning of that view that says God's law can't be followed because it cramps my style and because it seems unreasonable to me. Now, I want to be very careful uh, that my words about my opponents are accurate and, and gracious and winsome. Uh, and I'm making every effort in that, but I do want to suggest to you that there is a very serious and grave moral problem involved when a man argues against obedience to the law of God today because it, in fact, cramps his style and seems unreasonable. Precisely what Eve said. Eve said, this doesn't fit my preconceived notions of what the good life should be. After all, the fruit looks good to me. When did it begin to look good? When she began to let Satan insert his hypotheses as a, comp as a competitor to God's. Eve finally, because it cramped her style, did what God told her not to do. We've got to be very careful that we today don't. If, if we have grounds for rejecting the law of God, they will not be that it's inconvenient or seems too harsh. Our attitude has got to be, I am your servant, Lord. Speak, for your servant listens. We don't ever say to God, now wait a minute. That doesn't seem quite right. Paul says, but nay, man, who are you to reply to God? Can the thing that is made reply to its maker? God forbid. Yes, Greg? I'm not sure this is exactly maybe what's going through mind, but I've been thinking that over in terms of when people say, you know, uh, that's that's too harsh. Uh, just a while ago when we were talking about if you uh, talk with an unregenerate person or you with somebody with a competitive or competing uh, style, there are many times that we would appeal to... Uh, I think you even said yourself, it goes against 
you know, your greatest intuitive notions. It's kind of the common grace of a man, like uh, that we just nobody considers it right to just uh, you know hack a person up to punish the innocent. Yeah, or to punish the innocent. Mm -hmm. So that uh, there are some things that are just that, and when somebody says it's too harsh, are they are they appealing strictly to cramps my style, or maybe are they particularly for Christians trying to appeal, saying you know this is one of those places where my motive uh, or, or this this warning light your emotions heart, don't fit in with it you know mm -hmm. uh, is, is warning me to, to look it back over again okay now it's very important Greg to remember that when I brought up this you know we all know it's counterintuitive to approve of the uh, punishment of the innocent I was talking about dealing with those who are not Christians who are utilitarians and who themselves would grant that and yet their theory allows for them to punish the innocent that was an internal critique, if I can use that language from my apologetics class again. You can do an internal critique. However, when a Christian says, it doesn't fit into what I would expect God to be saying, then he's using his own... That was an internal critique, if I can use that language from my apologetics class again. You can do an internal critique. However, when a Christian says, it doesn't fit into what I would expect God to be saying, then... He's using his own, his own intuition and conscience, if you will, over against the clearer and more advantageous standard of God's law. And I want to qualify that in just a second. In other words, there's two different things here. What you're asking about is whether we should say, well, those laws can't be kept today because they're too harsh. Problem is, you have to grant that they, would be kept, they were to be kept in the Old Testament. Were they too harsh then? Would the godly conscience then have been offended? Well, it ought not to have been. And so one has to ask, why should it be offended today? But now I do want to say there is a slight, if you will, just a little corner of truth in what you're saying here that can be... Gary North and his uh, critique of, uh, of the strict Sabbath law. Oh, well, I, that's one of the places that Gary and I would have a friendly argument, I'm afraid. I don't like his theological method right there. Um, but there is this. It's one thing to say you cannot argue against the law of God on the basis of what your conscience says, but your conscience may tell you that perhaps that interpretation needs to be improved. Okay, so let's say that uh, a person who doesn't know Hebrew, uh, this may not turn out to be a good example, but somebody who doesn't know Hebrew goes to the Old Testament and finds some law in the Old Testament that given uh, a King James, interpret, uh, King James translation, he reads it and he gets the idea, well, this is what God wants us to do, and it comes out very harsh. And he, and he tries to teach that to a group of Christians, and they all say, well, no, wait a minute, that just... We can't right now tell you what's wrong with that, but boy, that sure doesn't fit into, you know my sanctified emotions, or my being sanctified emotions. I think it's legitimate at that point that we're all forced back into the Bible, not into ourselves, to say now, well, how many other Christians are there like us? But I think that our, our conscience might say, now, no, wait a minute, let's go back and see if that is what the Bible says. Then lo and behold, somebody shows up and says, well, yeah, given a King James translation in Elizabethan culture, that would be understandable, but in our day and age, going back to the Hebrew, it would be better to say this. And then all of a sudden we say, well, it still seems hard, but that is what God's law is saying, and I'm not going to let my conscience work against it. So there's that. I think we can all be forced to do our exegesis again because our conscience doesn't fit with it. But what bothers me is that there are people who don't, aren't asking that we go back and exegete the laws again, but that we say we don't have to pay attention to those laws at all because my conscience just won't let, think that God would ever punish a child for cursing his mother or striking his father. That just doesn't fit in with a New Testament feeling for love. And I mean, I have people with theological educations who say words almost to that effect. And I'm suggesting 
that I can love them, but in love I want to correct them. That was Eve's attitude, and that's where we all got messed up. And if Eve hadn't done that, we wouldn't have courses in ethics tonight. We'd all be building the kingdom of God. All right. Let's go now to the knowledge of God and blessing and curse, unless um, there was another question. Okay, the, the knowledge of God and blessing and curse. We've seen that the issue is God's word in the fall of man. Now, a redemptive word comes to man. God comes and speaks again. You notice how good God is? God had spoken once, and man said, I don't want to hear it. And God comes and he says, I'll speak again. God should have said, you don't want to hear it? So long. Isn't that right? He said, you don't want to listen to me? Well, then I won't tell anything to you. But God comes back and he says, no, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to save you. You know, that's really got to soften your heart if you're sensitive. The very fact that God would speak to man again is a sign of his grace. Well, now a redemptive word comes. comes in the form of a promise to Adam and Eve immediately after the fall. And you notice that that redemptive promise and word works in a powerful way because that word is going to do the work of clearing away all obstacles standing between us and God. That word will eventually accomplish what God pleases, and that's the reconciliation of himself to his elect people. Now, in a broad sense, God's law, which, according to Romans 8, is the law of the spirit of life, in a broad sense, God's law encompasses the workings of grace. God's grace observes the narrower structures of God's prescriptive law. God's grace does not work in contradiction to his law. God's grace does not override his law. God's grace does not invalidate his law. God's grace sees to it that the law is kept. So God's gracious, powerful, redemptive law has a saving power of its own in accord with its narrower demand. Okay, God spoke once, man fell. The word of God was at stake. God spoke again, and just because he has promised to redeem his people, that redemptive promise functions as a blessing or a curse to people. It functions as a law. But now Jesus Christ comes into the world. We must look at Christ in terms of his messianic obedience. And I pose a question for you. By the way, chapter 8 of Theonomy uh, discusses what I'm going to just deal with here in just a paragraph. So if you want more, you can look there. But I pose a question to you. Is it possible that Jesus could have come to do the will of God in saving his people and yet broken the will of God revealed as the standard of life for his people? Did Christ have to obey the law of God to be a savior, or did he simply have to come and give his life for men? Could a sinful savior save? No. Why do men need salvation? Because they've broken the law. Does it make any sense that Christ could have broken the law in the path to saving us because we broke the law? No. And the Bible says he had to be a perfect sacrifice. He had to be a spotless lamb. He had to be without blemish. He was tempted in all points, even as we are, yet without sin. The very reason that the priest ministered day by day and week after week and month after month and year after year in the tabernacle and in the temple 
was precisely that the sacrifice they brought was never satisfactory to God. But Christ once and for all has appeared as the perfect Lamb of God and has offered a sacrifice which puts away all sin forever. And consequently, there's no further need, the author of Hebrews says, that there be daily sacrifice. Jim? I'm just thinking that there, there may not be anything to this at all. It's interesting how in, in dispensational theology there is the uh, complete denial of any application of God's law today in regards to the Old Testament. Per right. se, and that, that you've got this sharp disjuncture between uh, the Old Testament law and, quote, the law of Christ. It's also interesting that we find, and I cite uh, Leitner's book on uh, the death Christ died, wherein he vehemently attacks the idea that the active obedience of Christ or Christ's fulfillment of the law is in any way really substitutionary because he has a universal application of the atonement and you can't have righteous men in hell. So he rather you know, does violence to that biblical doctrine. And, uh, Let me stop you right there. Can you have forgiven men in hell? Well, this is, this is why I think where he gets himself into a rather interesting bind. <laughs> so even the passive obedience of Christ is a problem for him, it right? It certainly would be. Yeah. I, I'm just wondering if there isn't some kind of a link between their denial of the... Uh, of the relationship of the law to the church today and uh, in that doctrine. In that doctrine. There may be something, there may not be anything there at all, but I'm kind of curious. Yeah, I think that's worth thinking about. Of course, the, the fact is there are five-point Calvinists who are dispensationalists. <coughs> strange situation, but <laughs> it does exist. Right. Let me go on and add now, in terms of fall and redemption, that God doesn't simply pardon his people's sin but he saves them from sin and breaks the power of sin so that they might lead holy lives. And so we have sanctification to take into account. Sanctification by the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit sanctify us, make us holy in a way which is contrary to his own holiness? Again, I'm giving you very easy questions, but I want you to see what is at stake when a man denies the validity of God's law is the holiness of the Spirit found in his law. Who inspired the law of God? The Holy Spirit. Romans 8.4 We don't walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit, that the ordinance of the law might be fulfilled in us. Of course, this is an aside, but I'm always somewhat taken back by people who will say, oh yeah, that's true, the Holy Spirit fulfills the law in us, but we don't have to keep all the law. Well, maybe we don't but you would never get that idea from reading the passages about the work of the Spirit in one's life. That qualification has got to come in somewhere. It's not obvious from the verse I just quoted to you. And now let's see. What was at stake in the fall of man? The authority of God's law. What is at stake in man's redemption? The authority of God's law. There's his redemptive promise. There's the obedience of his Son. There's the sanctifying work of his Spirit. And every one of them is tied up with the law of God and its validity and authority. Okay. I'm arguing then that if you look at general and special revelation, you've got to come to the conclusion God's law is binding today. If you consider that God is the standard of ethics, you must come to the conclusion that God's law is binding today. If you consider the word of God in creation and providence, you must come to the conclusion that God's law is binding today. If you look at the doctrines of the fall of man and the redemption of man in scripture, you must come to the conclusion that God's law is binding today. That's because God's word was at stake in the, in the fall, so God's law was binding, continues to be in terms of God's redemptive promise, continues to be in terms of the obedience of his Son, continues to be in terms of the holy, the workings of holiness by his Spirit, 
in our lives. Now, if the doctrines of the Christian faith, general and special revelation, the character of God, creation, providence, fall, and redemption, if every one of those doctrines implies the validity of God's law, I want to say, without any pointing to me as an author of a book on the subject, the fact is the case is overwhelming. I mean, if every one of the major doctrines of the Christian faith points to the same conclusion, that's what you would call a rather strong prima facie case for the validity of God's law. But now, just in case that isn't sufficient to prove to you that God's law is binding today, I want to look at at least one passage of Scripture where it's unavoidable. Richard, you've been waiting. Well, uh, it seems to me, something just occurred to me, that to say that, that we have the Holy Spirit in greater effect in the New Testament age, which frees us from obedience to the law, and yet to also maintain that Christ had to obey the law of God would imply that we've in fact sanctified ourselves beyond what Christ was. In other words, that he was bound to obey the law, yet we're not because we progressed in such a manner. Can I put it in my own words? Yeah, that we live, we live as ethically more mature than even Christ could. Right. He needed the piddly details. We only need the spirit. Now, again, what we're saying in plain language is something that our opponents don't wish to say. But the question is whether they are not driven to that if they would express themselves clearly and consistently. And I think they are. We can put it this way, too. There are people who say Christ had to keep every one of those details of the law, but once he did so, then his people don't. Well, I mean, that is rather strange. I mean, if, if he's come to redeem his people for violating the law, and he has to keep the law because they have violated it, why would they be allowed to violate it after he has saved them? But even more, if, if the law is binding only up to the point that he's obeyed it and he's raised from the dead and ascended on high, that's to say that Jesus had to avoid uh, transgression of the law against blasphemy and against uh, homosexuality and against adultery and stealing. But three years later, his people didn't have to avoid those things. But at that point, what does everybody say? Oh, no, we don't mean the whole law is gone. And then we get back into this subtle antinomianism where we go and let God's word rubber stamp our preconceived ideas. If the law seems reasonable to me, then of course it carries over into the New Testament. But some of those laws we don't allow, and the principle is not inside and outside the Ten Commandments. Because I can give you very easy, quick examples of things outside the Ten Commandments. The next time somebody says, we only have to keep the Ten Commandments, ask them if they think sexual relations with animals is sinful. There's no Christian, and this is getting back to that, and nobody who's got a regenerate conscience is going to say sexual relations with animals is all right. I trust that's true. Nobody professing Christ is going to make that big a mistake. But then asking, where in the New Testament is that taught? It's not. So it's not inside and outside the Decalogue. But you're absolutely right. If Christ had to keep these laws, it only makes sense that he would have us to keep these laws because isn't the Christian ethic a matter of imitating Christ? Didn't John say back here in 1 John that we ought to walk even as he walked? Well, how did he walk? In obedience to the law? All right. But now, if it's not sufficient to look at all these doctrines of the Christian faith, and I dare say that every doctrine of the Christian faith is in seed form or as a general category and is found up here right now. But if that's not sufficient, then, of course, I will turn to Matthew 5, and I will defend my exegesis of it right now. In Matthew 5, verses 17 to 19, Jesus says, Don't begin to think that I came to abrogate the law or the prophets. 
I did not come to abrogate. I'm not going to bother with the word plerao, which is translated fulfill. Okay? You may interpret that as you wish. But you may not interpret that to mean that he abrogated the law. Because then you make the verse contradictory. Jesus says, I did not come to abrogate, but I came to X. And X means abrogate. I mean, when all is said and done, it implies abrogation. So, by logical uh, transference, I did not come to abrogate, but I came to abrogate. It cannot mean abrogate. Whatever fulfill means, it cannot have anything to do with invalidation of the law. And Jesus says it twice for emphasis. Don't think that I came to abrogate. I did not come to abrogate. Why not? Verse 18 tells you, Because truly I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or tittle shall in any wise pass away from the law. I will leave it to you to interpret till all things are accomplished, however you wish. But you cannot interpret that to mean that the law passes away before the passing away of heaven and earth, because then verse 18 becomes self-contradictory. Jesus says the law will not pass away till heaven and earth passes away, until I keep it all. <sighs> Three years from now it passes away. They say that'd be like writing to a person and saying, between now and the end of um, history, your mortgage payment is due on the first of next month. No. Whatever until all things are accomplished means, it cannot mean that the law passes away before the passing away of the physical heavens and earth. Now, let's forget all of that. Let's just say that we don't know what verse 17 means, although it's rather clear if you're going to make consistent interpretation out of it that you do. Forget that verse 18, to be consistent, has to say the same thing. Whatever verse 17 and 18 mean, verse 19 applies it. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever plerao means, fulfill. Whatever pantagenetai means, it cannot mean that we have permission to teach the breaking of even the least commandment. What is the least commandment? Well, Jesus there, I, I, and I have people seriously who have contended that in the last year. In the very city of Jackson, Mississippi, with theological education, some of them doctors, have told me that this refers... <laughs> I don't know what that was. initials <laughs> are. No. <laughs> who have told me that the least of these commandments means the least of the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, with all the authority that could be mustered in the Greek language, I didn't come to abrogate until heaven and earth, not one jot or tittle will pass away. And I dare say you'll be demoted in the kingdom of God if you dare even teach the breaking of the least of these commandments, which is to say you can break all of those commandments and all the scriptures as long as you keep the ten. What Jesus really means here is that don't, don't break the least of ten of the commandments of the Old Testament. Absolutely incredible. Uh, exegetically uh, without warrant also, but I mean it's just incredible after the absolute and firm authority Jesus puts behind the law that he could then say, well, what I really mean is the Decalogue. No, he says the least of these commandments. Now, it turns out that the Jews of his day carried on interesting debates. And you know what they debated? We always make fun of the medieval theologians asking about how many angels on the, you know, the, the head of a pen or uh, the point of a pen, to be more exact. In Jesus' day, some of the Pharisees argued with themselves which the least commandment was in the Old Testament. Right, we, and we actually have some of the debate in the Talmud. You know, Rabbi so-and-so says, this is the least commandment. A good number of them thought the least commandment, the, mo the least important commandment was that 
uh, pertaining to the protection of a young mother bird, uh, a mother bird with her young. You can't kill them both. Well, I think what Jesus is saying is, I don't care what you think the least commandment is. Even it is binding. And if it holds in the case of the least, how much more the greater? That's a fortiori reasoning. If it's true in the lesser, it's true in the greater. From the lesser to the greater. Jesus says, I won't allow you to break even the least of the commandments. All right. Great. I say it's also said that the commandments refer to the Hmm. He has just mentioned the law and the prophets, though. Not one jot or tittle of the law and prophets. Well, it's clearly speaking about the Old Testament canon. Let me correct a few misconceptions for those of you who haven't read my book, or those who have read it and have forgotten. I do not... That happens. I mean, I even forget what I said sometimes, you know. When Jesus speaks of the law or the prophets, I do not think he is speaking of the Mosaic law. I think he's speaking about the Old Testament. Okay? But it's also true that he's talking about the laws of the Old Testament, the moral standards. He has just spoken in verse 16 of good works. So let your light shine before men that they see your good works. What are good works? Don't think that the law of prophets have been abrogated. The good works commanded in the Old Testament he's speaking of. He goes on, having said law and prophets, to speak simply of law after that. And then after that, in verse 19, he speaks only of commandments. And then in verses 20, uh, 21 through 48, he gives a bunch of examples from the Old Testament commandments. So if you want to do contextual exegesis, I don't care if you want to do biblical theology, but if you want to do contextual exegesis, Jesus is speaking of every law or every moral standard that reveals the, the will of God in the Old Testament, every jot and tittle of the Old Testament. So I don't maintain that Jesus is speaking of the Mosaic Law in particular, but it is true that he narrows his concern and application to the laws given by Moses or others. The fact is it's all the moral standards of the Old Testament, all the laws of the Old Testament. Moreover, it is not a matter of great concern to me whether you allow the word fulfill to be translated confirm. Now, it so happens that New Testament scholars of great repute have said that that is the case. I'm not counting myself. I'm not in that class by any means. But, I mean, you look at Gustav Dahlman, all right, who wrote, you know, the leading Aramaic um, grammar for the Jewish-Palestinian people. Or look at uh, W.H.P. Hatch, who wrote uh, the New Testament documents on Mount Sinai. Uh, or if you read uh, even George Eldon Ladd, somebody who is that far from my own theological sympathies. Uh, or John Murray. Or uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones or John Stott. And I can give you a large number of other examples of people who use the language of confirmation and ratification for the meaning of fulfill in verse 17. Okay. I'm trying to think there are some other misconceptions that I was going to tell you about, but let me just throw it open to questions before we have a break here. Uh, it's right here that I'd like you to ask all your questions then about all of this or the interpretation of Matthew 5.17 Anything that you've heard, I don't care if you even understand the argument, I'll try to give you an answer. I want to get it all out and get it washed so that when we come back after the break we can get on to some constructive views. Because in the end, I think we can really get bogged down in ethics by just dealing with the debates among the ethicists. Uh, when all is said and done, I, I hope, whether you agree with everything I say, that I give you some direction for how to live your life. And I want to get on to that. So, between now and the break, let's finish this up. Okay, here's the aspect that I thought of this past week or so. Um, 
remembering, of course, in light uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. You, you stated that God is the standard and that his revealed word in regards to his law is sufficient for our understanding or our knowledge uh, given all of the parameters to understand or to understand what is the right thing to do in any given case. Um, my question is, in the Old Testament there seems to be some indication that the revealed will of God in regards to the Mosaic law and whatever written scriptures they had at that particular time, let's say especially at the time when the tabernacle was revealed and built. Uh, apparently, there seems to be that it, that was not quite sufficient because God did give them the Urim and the Thummim, to which, in cases where they did not know what to do, they were to consult. And then God, by further special revelation, would give them indications that, okay, now here's the right thing to do. Right. Now, it would seem to me that somebody could make a, a fairly good case by saying, well, yes, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, but there's this, this aspect to which, because of either our nature or something, we do not know by the written revelation what is the right thing to do in every given case. Well, that's what Paul says in Second Timothy 3, though. I mean, that, the argument appears good on the surface, but Paul says if you pay attention to the Old Testament scriptures, mm -hmm. you'll be perfectly equipped to every good work. I'll tell you what the difference is, I think. Then we would ask why the urine would come up. Okay, I'm going to try to show you why. In any case of drawing a moral conclusion, you're going to have a standard that you use, then you're going to have the person who uses it, and then he's going to apply it to his situation. Okay? Now, what you're saying is, it's obvious that back there in those days, they needed the Urim and Thummim, and we don't need that today. Consequently, the standard was defective, not in the sense that what it said was wrong, but it didn't say enough. You follow? I, I've recast your argument in terms of these classifications. Because there was, at that time, Urim and Thummim, but not today, then the standard was inadequate in that day. I want to suggest to you that the argument can go just as well, and I have exegetical grounds for arguing, that it wasn't the standard that was defective, it was the people who were defective. That is, they did not have the spiritual maturity required to use God's law properly. What does Jeremiah say in chapter 31 about the new covenant because I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel in those days not like the covenant I made with them in Sinai which covenant they break but now this covenant I'm going to write the law in their hearts in Ezekiel we see that Ezekiel says a new heart will be given them so they will walk in my statutes and my ways Romans 8 the Holy Spirit you see guides us so that we fulfill the ordinance of the law I want to suggest that what is different is the work of the spirit in the New Testament and the, Urim, and the work of the Spirit was found in the Urim and Thummim in the Old Testament. Now, I don't want to say it's only that and only this, but you see there was a work of the Spirit in the Old Testament which was supplemented by further special revelation that is no longer needed, Urim and Thummim, now that God has completed his revelation, has given his Son, and has, has shed forth his Spirit. That we as people now have a greater ability to understand the law and apply it and keep it than even an Old Testament Jew did. And therefore, we don't need Urim and Thummim. Can I ask a Cool. An honest question. Sure. And, uh, <laughs> not that the first one wasn't. Now let's, let's with, with the particular uh, millennial eschatology. We all hold. Well, <laughs> we that to most of us only. <laughs> As the uh, kingdom of God in this world is advanced and uh, situa situations come up, people professing believers who are regenerate, who have been given the Holy Spirit, look at a particular situation and in the plates of the urine of 
yeah. the Holy Spirit then being the operative force to understand the law of God comes to different conclusions. How is that resolved? In the way that I talked about last week, the seeing as, by greater ethical maturity and, and experience, wisdom. Well, no, I'm not saying God has sent us any empires. We're supposed to be able, we're supposed to, through mutual exhortation, through mutual exhortation, we're supposed to be able to, I mean, this is ideal. Provided sin doesn't keep us from doing what we ought to do, and it always does to some degree, but sin apart, Christians should be able to exhort each other to the point where they can come to one mind. Paul says, I pray that you be of one mind. And um, I frankly believe that the day is coming in which the denominations that now um, splinter Christendom will be done away with. And I believe that within the one unified church that God will raise up in that day of great gospel prosperity, when, you know, see, pure worship would be offered to him in the language of the Old Testament, that his people will have a greater ability to exhort each other and to come to one mind. That's why there'll be one denomination. See, I, I guess I want to ask, in the, in the playing of the game, umpires, I mean, I... Yeah, we all do. And that's, that's where I feel... We have a hankering, we have a hankering for the Old Testament Urim and Thummim. <laughs> but not the Egyptian leaks and garlic. Well, <laughs> good. You remember? Just the... What... Let's put it this way. I think maybe I'm going to change the terms of the discussion a minute, but I can make my point this way. What if Jesus were here right now? Okay, let's say you and I have a difference. I mean, a friendly one. It's not dividing us in terms of our love for each other, but we just cannot get through this difference on some doctrinal or ethical point. And if Jesus were here, what could we do? We'd say, well, Lord, what's the answer to this? Right? So you would grant, don't you, that if Jesus were here, he'd be the best umpire of all. And Jesus told his disciples, it is to your advantage if I go away. Why? Because I'll give you the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty hard thing to, uh, to digest, isn't it? Because I know in my heart of hearts, in my heart of hearts, I, I still can't help but think, you know, if Jesus were here, I wouldn't have to fight this theonomy thing anymore, you know? <laughs> he'd either correct me, or he'd correct my opponents, or correct us both, but I mean, we could just get on with it, right? I can't help but think that if you were right, if I had an umpire, the best of umpires, the Son of God, but Jesus said, it's to your advantage if I give you the Holy Spirit instead. His disciples found that hard to believe. But that's what Jesus said, and I think we have to believe it too. So anyway, I, if, if, if the Holy Spirit's better than even the presence of Jesus Christ, then he's certainly better than the presence of the Urim and Thummim, which even confused the Hebrews, I get the impression. All right, other questions about uh, the exegesis of Matthew 5 or the law of God, things of that nature? Brad? That general revelation... Yes. Yes. I'm saying that there is no moral standard found in general revelation that is not also found in special revelation. Well, you see, in a broader sense, we would. But in terms of the point I'm making here, no, we wouldn't lose any standards. But you see, there's an advantage to the fact that we live in a context that is constantly revealing God. And it helps us when we go to the Bible to be living in that context and to hear the voice of our Father speaking in Scripture. So I'm speaking of the dynamic of how God gets his word through to us. But uh, in terms of the uh, information, there's no information we'd be lacking for ethics if general revelation were not the case. That, by the way, has a lot to say about our Dutch brothers, doesn't it? Who are always saying, we need, you know, we need to go to general revelation, just learn these creation norms. Oh, yeah, we sure do. That's great. And, I, and you know, we can keep working at it. But don't think that we're going to find something there we couldn't find if we exegeted the Bible. Or I especially don't think you'll find something in general revelation that'll show you why you don't have to follow the Bible at some point. 
which is really the outcome of some arguments that, well, if you study general revelation, you see we don't have to keep the Old Testament law at this or that or the other point. I just don't see how you can square that with with some of the most elementary New Testament theology. Other questions? Correct. I think of, for example, when we're told that the garments were for glory and for beauty, and we're often told about things which are beautiful uh, in Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're talking about aesthetic beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a beautiful woman without discretion is like a gold ring in a swine's mouth. Uh, all of those things, and yet, we don't have any pictures of what was beautiful. I mean, not ethically we can talk about it, but aesthetically, how do we term- determine that was... You see, that's what I'm wondering about this question of, of, of general revelation, and where does that help us in terms of what is beautiful? I, I, I'm just raising I have, the question. I, don't I, have no, I have no way of knowing how to answer that question. I'll be the first one to admit that uh, aesthetics as a philosophy or how the Bible itself gives us that, I've done no work in it at all. Uh, and that isn't to say it doesn't deserve work. It just my time and my calling has not been in that area. And so I don't even know how to begin to answer your question. Although I'm very sympathetic to C.S. Lewis's argument in The Abolition of Man, uh, where he argues that it's not a Christian thing to say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Beauty's in the eye of the Lord. And uh, now how we flesh that out and make use of it, I frankly think is going to be something for the, you know, down the road in the millennium. <clears throat> we can't even settle our apologetical differences yet. I don't believe we're going to do very well on aesthetic philosophy. That's a really tough area. In fact, I didn't even take a course in aesthetics when I was in graduate school because it's just... I mean, you, you walk into a whole new ball game when you go into that. And uh, I just... I'm not ready for it. Sorry. Other questions about now the standards of God's law? I really want, you know, arguments you've heard against this, lay them out. Uh, what would you say to someone who contends that if you take the case law as being applicable today, it would require a modern-day pound uh, giving specific application to our cultural setting? Well, I'd say that's wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why would it take a modern-day Talmud? We have the Holy Spirit. We know we've gone over that now. The Holy Spirit's going to give us wisdom and all that. Now, granted, we're all, you know, babes in Christ, and we need to grow up. And as Hebrews says, we've talked about this before, constant use in these things helps to make one, you know, discern what's good and evil and all that. I think it's always a matter of sanctification, maturity, wisdom, and the work of the Spirit. It's not a question of getting all the rabbis together and saying, well, rabbi so-and-so and rabbi so-and-so and all that. That was good for an age of immaturity, but we live in an age of majority now. Well, picking up on that question, I'm thinking of in terms of, of the judicial law. We always talk of precedent. Yeah. And uh, in a sense, that's precisely what the Talmud is all about, is setting precedent. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that when uh, two people agree by the Holy Spirit, uh, they're quite sure that in this particular case, uh, this and this is the case. And so it's set down. Mm-hmm. Well, then the next case comes up, they're going to refer back to that. Yeah. And the case after that, they're going to refer back to it, and then there may be somebody else throwing something in. And isn't that, in effect, a problem? No, no. Um, because I think the attitude of the New Testament believer is that of the Bereans, you know, of testing everything according to the Word of God. The Hebrews, uh, the Jews, got away from that, didn't they? Oh, yeah, they tested everything by Word That's right, by, by tradition. They had, in fact, uh, a, a hidden Torah as they spoke of it, which could even invalidate the Torah. I mean, 
Jesus had to correct them in their interpretation. It said, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So love your brother and hate your enemy. And he said that, you know, that may be what your tradition says, but it isn't what the law of God says. You know, another way to answer that, it just dawns on me, is let us say we don't have the case law. And we have one of these sticky situations come up. Now, which would you rather have? God tell, giving you an exact precedent about the axe head flying off and all that? Or would you like God to say, do the loving thing? And watch us struggle and argue when there are 30 different concepts of love. Or we can say that God has shown us what the loving thing is. Here's the illustration he's given to guide us. And it's a great advantage to avoid this kind of, you know, uh, dealing with each other and trying to come to a majority vote when God gives us more explicit guidance. I've always contended that while people want to get away from the details of God's law, I haven't always contended that. I, believe me, I, I've, I went through a period where I didn't think anybody in his right mind could believe these things either. But since I've come, I hope, to, to see the truth of that, uh, it has seemed to me that it is a sign of God's love to us to give us all those laws, not a sign of God's trying to weigh us down with all this terrible burden. John says in 1 John chapter 5, and his commandments are not burdensome. I'm arguing with people a lot these days who have the idea that these laws, if we just get them off our back, you know, what a pain. And John says they're no burden to us. That's a sign of God's love. He loved us so much that he even showed us how to regulate our sewage and how to regulate our dealing with animals and our this, that, and the other. That's how much God loves us. Now the gods of the pagans, well, yeah, they, they love them. Their gods give direction, you know, about that far, nothing. But our God, he comes right into our experience, right into our lives, and he takes up all the sticky cases and shows us what we're supposed to do. That's how much God loves us. And so Jesus says, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments.